And so we'll take chapter two. In the city of Birmingham, uh, right in the city centre, uh, somebody paid for a giant billboard. And it had on it this message. This message was right in the heart of the city. So my husband Mark and my best friend Shelley, you are the most despicable, deceitful people I've ever met. I know you did, and I'm disgusted. I changed the locks, Mark, I burnt your clothes, and emptied our joint account to pay for this poster. You deserve each other, Jen. And now that is one way to um, deal with an affair, isn't it? That is um, one way to get revenge. Uh, there are plenty of examples of that. Uh, you know, the wife who sells her husband's Porsche on eBay for a pound. Or a few years ago, the um, wife of the Czech Prime Minister, when she discovered uh, on Prime Time TV that her husband was having an affair with the deputy leader of the Czech government, she decided there and then that uh, she would run uh, as a candidate in the election to run against him. Um, we recognise that sort of scenario. We see it on the TV, don't we? Betrayal, um, revenge, public humiliation, scandal. Story of loads of Netflix movies and TV dramas. But it's a story of Hosea and Goba in the Bible. It's got all the same ingredients. And if you know chapter one, and chapter one kind of outlines um, this sordid tale. And chapter two is every bit as shocking as that billboard in the city of Birmingham. But there's a twist to the story. Uh, three things I, I want you to see. I want you to see, first of all, that the chapter begins with a desperate plea from a loving husband. A desperate plea from a loving husband. And then we'll see, secondly, a door of hope that's opened in this relationship. And then the third thing we'll see is a, is a day of restoration that's promised. So there are three things, a desperate plea, a door of hope, and a day of restoration. Let's look at the desperate plea, just look at verse 2. And the NIV says, uh, rebuke your mother, Re rebuke her, verse uh, 2 in the ESV, if you've got that, says plead with her. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face. Uh, one of the things that you should never do if you're a parent here is to communicate your, to your spouse through your children. Do you remember that? It's, it's always a bad thing to do. Especially when the relationship's a little bit rocky. Uh, tell your mother, dot, dot, dot. Uh, you go and tell your father, such and such. You know the sort of thing. It's, it's never a good idea, is it, to draw your kids into a conflict with your spouse. And yet it often happens, all too often, doesn't it? And the kids, the children, are the ones to suffer. But what you find in this chapter, and what follows, what you find in these verses is something that no child should ever have to hear about their mother. Look at verse 2. But she's put her whoring away from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, make her as in the day she was born. Make her like a wilderness. Make it like a parched lamb and kill them with thirst. Upon the children I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. 
imagine uh, you went on the BBC website tomorrow and uh, you started reading about your parents. But you started reading about all the intimate details of your parents' relationship. In the newspaper. Exposed on national TV. It's shocking, isn't it? As you read these verses, the marriage is in serious trouble. Uh, the marriage is broken down, they're not speaking to each other. Tell your mother he's not talking to her. And the reason is that he's not speaking to her is because she's not there anymore. Look at verse 5. She has said, I will go after my lovers. Here's how Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases it. He says, I'm off to see my lovers. They will wine and dine, dress and caress me, perfume and adore me. She's out of that. And look what it says in verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with the ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now, can you see something that's coming in there, into the story of Hosea? Clearly, it's not just one story, is it? It's two stories. This isn't just a story of a broken marriage. It's not just a story of Hosea and Gomer. It's the story of God and Israel, isn't it? Gomer's unfaithfulness, Gomer's promiscuity, epitomizes Israel's apostasy, walking away from the and that's obvious when you read through the chapter. You read through the language that is used now. So look at verse 11 to 13. And I will put an end to all of her feasts and numerals and Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts. And I'll lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my loves have given me. And I will make my forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I'll punish her for the feast days of the gods. So can you see? It's all about the yearly celebrations, new moons, Sabbath days. And so we're not just talking about Gomer, are we, the woman? We're talking about a whole religious system. This is Israel. And you see, the Lord's done a, a pretty good, good job for Israel. He's got out of Egypt. He's rescued her from slavery. And it looks like she was going to go out of existence altogether. And yet God has rescued her. And he's brought her into Canaan, the promised land. The place he promised for Abraham. But that was centuries ago. And now they're in the land, they need provision and they need plenty. And that's exactly what the Canaanite fertility gods can offer them the Baals. It's possible, isn't it? Even probable that Gomer was a cult prostitute in one of the shrines. Uh, Baal worship evolved that. Let me pause here for a moment and try and apply this to us. I think we can apply it on a number of levels, in a number of different directions. We can apply it to our society and to our Western world, because our Western world, our society, the city we live in, owes an enormous amount, doesn't it, to its Christian past, medical science, trade unions, the abolition of, abolition of slavery, the rule of, the rule of law, freedom of conscience, tolerance, Christian virtues. That sense of human significance, with, which with it comes a duty of care. And we can go on. And we take all those things for granted, don't we? Our culture does. But all of those things are rooted in Christianity and the outworking of Christianity. 
you can read the books by Tom Holland and others that show this, we still reap today the fruit of those blessings in the UK. We're fast running away from the source of them, but the blessings have come to us from them. From the God who gave us these things, isn't that right? In fact, we even use the blessings that God has given us to run away from him. Our Donald Barnhouse was the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He puts it like this. He paints this picture. He says, God will give man the trees of the forest and the iron of the ground. And then he will give to man the brains to make an axe from the iron to cut down a tree and to fashion it into a cross. He will give man the ability to make a hammer and nails. And when man has the cross, the hammer and the nails, he will allow man to take over. And bring him to that cross. And in so doing, take the sins of mankind upon itself. And he'll make it possible for those who despise him and reject him to come to him and know the joy of sins forgiven. To know the assurance of pardon and eternal life and enter into the prospect of the hope of glory with him forever. Do you see wonderfully God can make the wrath of God to praise him? God can take even the wicked deeds of people and still bring blessing and mercy even to the perpetrators of those things. He is absolutely sovereign and he is absolutely sovereign in the matter of salvation. When Jesus died, he died according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You, with wicked hands, took him and crucified him. But we can apply this to ourselves, can't we? Not just our society and individuals personally. We cannot escape the fact that we have been made by God, for God. And the image of God is stamped upon us. But when we turn from God, when we turn from our maker to worship other gods, Augustine calls it concupiscence. Concupiscence. That's the word he coins. It's, it's an infection of the disorders. Our desires are warped. Now you might remember the Narnia stories. C.S. Lewis talks about this, um, where the white witch, if you've read the stories, uh, gives to Edmund a magical or enchanted Turkish delight. Do you like Turkish delight? I detest Turkish delight, but Edmund liked it. He liked Turkish delight. And in that story, the wicked witch uh, gives Edmund some enchanted Turkish delight, and he says anyone who has tasted that Turkish delight would want more and more, and if allowed, go on eating more and more and more of it until they kill themselves. Well, that's Gomer, isn't it? That is Israel too, chasing after other lovers, craving, crying out for other gods. And that's you and me. Paul describes it in the New Testament of Philippians. He says, I've often told you, and I'm telling you again with tears in my eyes, many churches who live like this, they live as if Jesus had never died. There are people that they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like. He says their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach. 
And their glory is their shame. And their mind is set on earthly things. Do you see? Their God is not the God who made them. And the God who created them. The God who stamped his image upon them. And the God who has given them their every breath. Their God is not the God who gave his son to redeem them on the cross. Their God is what? Their son. That's what we choose after. We chase after our bodily desires and passions, which, which are not wrong in themselves. You know, in, in the right context, these things are good, aren't they? And we thank God for sex and food, for the enjoyment of food, for the desire that we have for companionship. They are good servants. The desire for sex is a good servant that God has given us. The problem is, the servant has now become the master. So Solomon talks about Ecclesiastes, and he draws a little cartoon that you find in newspapers. He says, I've seen slaves on horseback while the princes go about on foot. It's meant to be the other way, wasn't it, in Solomon's world? Uh, the king was to ride on the horse, and the servant slave was to trudge around behind the horse. But Solomon, when he observed life, he looked around at human nature. And he says, I've seen the slave on the horse and the king, the prince, trudging behind. Cap in hand, that's you and me. That's how we live our lives, governed by our own passions and our own desires. Instead of those things serving us, they are controlling us. We chase after these things. We look for happiness and fulfilment in things which are meant to serve us. And so we face this challenge, don't we, in society in general terms, where turning our back on the God, the God who made us and gave us so much, but and run away from him. But we're also facing this challenge as individuals. That instead of worshipping the God who made us, we chase after gods to give us our sense of significant significance and security. Wealth, career, sport, all sorts of things. Joy Davidman uh, was C.S. Lewis' wife. You, you might know she wrote a little book on the Ten Commandments called Smoke on the Mountain. Listen to what she says. She says the real horror of idols is not merely that they give us nothing, but they take away from us what we have. And then she gives a couple of examples. She Says, so for example, uh, the house devours the proud housewife. Isn't that right? Have you seen that? If God is your home and everything has to be absolutely perfect, well, you don't dare have any guests in because they might dirty your carpets or, or wreck the house and something. If your house is your God, that you are chasing after something that will, in the end, devour you. We know in other ways, don't we? The, the office executive whose stomach is rotting with ulcers. The canned entertainment that we devour means that we're incapable of entertaining ourselves. But perhaps, not so much generally to society and to people as individuals, may, maybe the real application for us this morning is to those of us who are the people of God, as God's people. Now, Hosea is God's prophet, 
And he is bringing a message from God to God's people. And in the same way that Israel, at this time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah II, in the same way that Israel saw the Lord as good for salvation, but not much good for anything else, so do we. He was their saviour. They, they knew the Song of Moses and the Lamb. They could sing about the Exodus. They could talk about Yahweh as their saviour. He brought them out of Egypt into Canaan, but he wasn't actually very relevant to their everyday lives. But isn't that where we go wrong? Uh, we worship God, we sing the Psalms and hymns on Sunday, but we live for the gods of this world during the rest of this week. Uh, we call Jesus our saviour, but we refuse him access to the nitty-gritty of our lives. And so maybe when it comes to school, or when it comes to work, or when it comes to family, or when it comes to finances, or when it comes to relationships, Jesus actually doesn't really go say. The last thing we do is we find out what Jesus says. And we're influenced by the influencers. Or what our friend says, or what Instagram says, or what our company demands of us. But how does he feel about it? That's why this book is in the Bible. Because you cannot read Hosea without feeling the raw, grinding emotion. The jealous, hurting love of a spurned husband for a runaway wife. Well, that's what this book is about. It's about what God thinks. It's about what God feels. Children of a year, it's great that you're here. Do, do, you, um, uh, do your parents ever say to you, um, uh, you've done something wrong and you apologise to your mum and dad? And they say, I hope they say this to you. They say, oh, there's someone else you need to apologise to as well. They say that. Because you and I, we live in the sight of God. Well, here's the second thing. Um, there's a door of hope, isn't there? Because in verse 15, God promised to do, promises to do something about it. He promises in verse 15 to open a door of hope. It all sounds so desperate when you listen to the plea of this desperate husband. It seems so helpless and hopeless. But God says in verse 13, I will do something. I will punish her for the few days of bales. But she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And then he says in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards, make the valley of Eagle a door of hope. So I'm looking at verse 13 to 14, um, again, just with me. And verse 13, he says he's going to punish her. And then in verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will. I will what? How would you finish that sentence? Uh, your marriage partner has been uh, adulterous, and she's repeatedly gone after other partners. What would you say? Therefore, now I'm going to divorce her? Surely, surely that's what you'd expect, isn't it? Therefore, I will move on with the next chapter of my life. Right, it's the end of the road, go back. 
We're all over her. Read on, look at verse 14. Therefore, I will allure her. I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. You're not expecting that, are you? Here's what I'm going to do, says Isaiah. So he says, I'm going to start all over again. I'm going to take her back. I'm going to go back into the wilderness where we had our first date. And where Israel was formed as a nation. Do you remember those years in the wilderness? Where God entered into his covenant. I'm going to bring her back to the wilderness where we had our first date. And I'm going to woo her. I'm going to give her a bouquet of roses. I'm going to remind her of where it all began. Matt Chandler is uh, the leader of the Acts um, 29 Christian movement. If you've heard him, he kind of, it's like an air traffic controller the way he preaches. And, and so listen to him rather than watch him, would be my advice. Uh, but Matt Chandler tells the story of um, when he was at college. He was sat next to um, a woman in the college chapel. Uh, she was 26 years old, she was a single mum, and she was trying to balance, you know, raising a, a small child with finishing a degree all on her own. It's really difficult. He says that um, he and his friends began to befriend her and share the gospel with her, and, and they babysit occasionally for her to give her a bit of a break. And then one day, um, they invited her to a concert. In fact, they thought it was a concert. Uh, she, she, she'd been invited to go watch a friend playing in a band. She, she just assumed it was a concert, but it turned into kind of an evangelistic rally. She turned up at the concert, but there was a guy preaching at the front. And he said he was going to talk about sex, and he took a red rose, and he smelt it, he showed the red rose to the crowd. And he said this. He said, how pretty is it? Isn't it? Then he threw it, uh, the red rose, out into the auditorium. There were about a thousand people, and he told them to uh, pass uh, the rose around to smell it, to feel the texture of the petals. And then as Matt Chandler puts it, he went off on one. Worst, most horrific tirade of what sex is and what it isn't. Matt Chandler said, I'm thinking to myself, with this girl whose name was Kim, I'm thinking to myself, with Kim beside me, what are you doing? And as he wrapped up, he asked, this is the combination of that speech, where is that rose? Some kid comes to the platform and brings the rose back to him. He holds it up, but the petals are broken. And the rose is broken, and he lifts it, and he holds it up for all to see, and then he shouts at the top of his voice, Who would want this rose now? Who would want it? Chandler says, anger welled up within me, and I wanted to say, Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants that rose. It's the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? God made him who knew no sin. The only one who has the right to condemn us and to criticize us. God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. All our sin, all our uncleanness, all our filthiness, all our rebelliousness, all our ugliness, and all our greed, all our distorted our ambition and emotions, all our sin, God took it, took it upon himself. And God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God. That's beautiful, isn't it? That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It's, it's the difference between moralism 
and Christianity, isn't it? Moralism says to you, try a bit harder, pick yourself up. Clean yourself up, get, get yourself together. And God might accept you. It's a message, tragically, that lots of people hear in churches today. But what does the gospel say? Don't, don't you love these words? What does the gospel say? It says this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you were like Goa, when you're hopeless and helpless and messed up and driven by demons, controlled by your own disordered desires, that's when Jesus died for you. By his death on the cross. And you and I are given a fresh start and a new beginning. Look at what verse 15, look what God says there in verse 15. And I will give you vineyards and make the valley of Agor a door of hope. Again, we're not familiar with the geography, we, but the valley of Agor was that valley that leads from the Jordan Valley to the promised land. If you know your Bible, you'll know that in the Bible it's, it's where Israel suffered a, a depressing and humiliating defeat. It's the second place they got to when they entered the promised land. The first place was Jericho, and you know, remember what happened in Jericho, around the walls of Jericho? The army went and the walls came tumbling down. And then the next place, they approach full of pride and self-confidence, and they go on to the next place, Ai. And because of one man's sin, because of Achan's sin, they suffered a very humiliating defeat, and they're almost completely wiped out. And do you see what God is saying here? He's saying curiously, I promise that I'm going to turn your defeat into your victory. I'm going to make the valley of ego, which is so depressing, a door of hope. Notice it's a door, you're going to go through a door. Jesus said, I am the door. Everyone who has come before me is a thief and a robber, but I am the door. I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pastures. So let me ask you, have you gone through the door? Have you entered into all that God has for you in Christ? Or are you still in the wrong side of the door? Are you still in the valley of humiliation, sadness, brokenness? Still in the place of defeat. Lying in the eyes of another. But God promises to you today a door of hope. He offers to you hope. To go through the door. And then lastly, beyond and above that, not only does he promise to open a door of hope in the valley of Acor, in the place of defeat and humiliation, he promises to you, do you notice, a day of restoration. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, and in that day, verse 18, should be, and in that day, in that day, I will make for them a covenant on that day. And then if you look at verse 21, it's the same thing again, and in that day. We talk about the lost tribes, the lost tribes of Israel. Very soon after Isaiah's day, the, the ten tribes are going to be carried off by the Assyrians into oblivion. That's going to be the end. That's going to be the end of the story of God's people. No, there's a day coming, isn't there? Verse 16. God says in verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer call me my husband. 
I will remove the names of the Baals from my mouth, and they will be remembered by no more. And then in verse 18, and I will make them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the feeble things of the ground. I will polish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Verse 18, he will, on that day, then verse 21, and in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grave, the wine and the oil. You see, um, what those verses are telling you is that, that Hosea is promising a day when wave after wave after wave after wave of God's blessing will come. The tide isn't going out, it's coming in ultimately. And so this marriage, which we've seen has been pulled apart, is going to be restored. Now it'll be broken again. The relationship between God and his people, which seems to be on the rocks, ultimately will be restored. C.S. Lewis, again, I think, captures better, better than anyone in his essay, The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us, promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong or too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum. Because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday in the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus said, I am the door. And if anyone comes in through me, they will be saved. And they will come in and go out. And they will find pasture. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message which speaks to us today. Speaks to our waywardness and our spiritual promiscuity. Speaks to our chasing after other gods. And, and we confess as your people, we are too easily satisfied. We're too easily satisfied with things that are just passing away. With things that are not necessarily bad in themselves, but they're simply made to serve us. And we don't turn to you, and we don't seek after you. And so we pray that you would deal with us on this Lord's Day that our relationship with you might be restored. That that which is broken might be mended. That we would be brought back to rejoicing in the salvation of our Christ. We thank you that it's in him and through him that you've given us a future and a hope that no one can take from us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um,